Father God, um, it is a humbling and honoring thing to approach your throne and to look at the very image of you, your very self, flesh incarnate. Father God, I just ask that you would give us wisdom as we look into the person of Jesus and that you would, um, you would give me the words to speak about something that is so unspeakable. Father God, would you open our hearts and our minds to receive whatever it is that you have to teach us this morning and that you would just ingrain, us, ingrain it into, um, into us and, and, and brand it on, on, on our hearts. In your holy and precious name, amen. Now, for those of you who don't know, I have a, I have a she's almost two, a two-year-old daughter, and she's awesome. And she talks a lot, and I can't be up here without you know, taking the opportunity to at least tell like a story or two about her. Uh, so, so she's starting to talk more than we'd like sometimes. Um, she went up to my brother the other day, who's, who's been in a lot of pain. He had some surgery, and she went up to him, and she goes, Uncle Chris, you always need hope. And I'm like, yeah, you're right, you do. And then we were in Ikea the other day, and she says to me, she turns to me and my husband, and she goes, I'm having a little bit of trouble with my parents right now. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know where you heard that from, but do you want to talk about it? I mean, I don't really know what to do with all of that. Um, But my favorite was the other day when I was trying to get her to come to me. She was coloring on this stack of papers that she probably wasn't supposed to. I still don't know what they are, but she was coloring on them. And I'm trying to get her to come over here. I need to get her pajamas on. So I'm like, come here, Lyra, come here right now, Lyra, Lyra. I'm like yelling her name. I'm literally tap dancing in front of her. Please come, come on, come over here right now. And finally I start clapping. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Finally, she turns and she goes, Mama, I'd rather not come to you right now. I'm busy coloring. But if you really want me to come, I will. No. She didn't actually say that at all. You could see the wheels in her head turning and turning and turning. And you could tell that what she was thinking about is, do I really want to do that? Do I really want to come to you? Because what I'm doing right now is much more enjoyable. Do I really want to give up what I'm doing to come to you? How much is obedience really going to cost me in this moment? And I think what she was doing right there, what I keyed into in that moment of watching her face kind of like, how much is this going to cost me, right? I think that we all live with the same sort of question in our mind. God asks us to be obedient. God asks us over and over to be obedient. Uh, we, issue, we deal with issues of obedience all the time, whether it's with our spouse, our coworkers, our boss, our children, um, even our spouses. They ask us to some degree to be obedient at some point in time. And God asks us to obedient, be obedient too. He asks us to radically love our neighbor who just let their dog poop on our lawn. He asks us to radically love our coworker who is above and beyond obnoxious. He asks us to radically love our family members who embarrass us no matter to, to the tenth degree. He asks us to give of our resources and our time to um, create a way for transformation to happen in this local community and in places we don't even know about. 
He asks for this type of obedience. And the thing that always triggers in our mind is, how much is this going to cost me? What is the cost for this? Now, Jesus completely understood this very clearly, this idea of cost. And he speaks to it in Luke 14. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 14. At the time... Jesus had been walking around with his disciples, and oftentimes I think of his following being those 12 followers, those 12 disciples. But the reality is, is as we read through the gospel, we see many different areas where there were a lot more people than just those 12. There were large, large crowds that were following him. So in, the verse, in verse 25, which we're jumping into, this is one of those exact points. Jesus is being followed by a very large crowd, and he turns to them and he says this, these words. The large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, oh, I paraphrased that well. Um, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and child, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Wouldn't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundations and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began a build, uh, to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with the 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he will send a delegation while, the, while they are still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. So this is not exactly the thing you want to say when you're trying to gain a following, right? This is a very difficult teaching. Hey, all of you who are following me, you need to give up everything in order to continue to follow me. I imagine that his disciples kind of nudged him and were like, um, hey, Jesus, like, I know you're trying to get people to follow you. This is not exactly the way you're supposed to do it. This is a terrible marketing strategy. If you want to do it better, you need to say something like, hey, no money down. 100% guarantee that you're going to get what you want, uh, little to no interest for the first year, and if you wind up having trouble paying the cost, we'll put a payment plan in there. I mean, I feel like that's how like, all the timeshares get their sort of big thing. Like, no money down. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how we're doing it. If you want to follow me, you have to pay everything. The cost of following me is huge. And I just... I just wonder, who let him out with that strategy? <laughs> how, did, how did that even work? And, and, and when the people heard that, I imagine many of them like just left. They were like, well, I'm not ready to pay everything. I don't really want to do that. That sounds like a bad deal. And I even look at the people in this room, and I wonder, are we, do we know that about Jesus? Do we know and understand and grasp, grasp that he has asked us to pay everything, that the cost is very high to follow him? Now, my next question is, why would anybody follow him? If it's going to cost everything, why would you do it? Now, a little example, an illustration for you to, to play this out. When I was young, I used to play piano. Well, I didn't used to play piano. My mom actually signed me up for piano lessons. And 
Uh, the story goes that I actually got kicked out of piano, and it was because as a child, I was a very excitable child, I'm sure you can imagine this, and I would swing my legs so much that I would kick the piano, and the teacher did not like this at all, and no matter how many times she told me to stop, I kept doing it because I was just so excited. So I couldn't stop. But, but So I got kicked out of piano lessons, and I never really learned how to play, but I always really wanted to know how to play. I always really wanted to be good at this. And so once in a while, I'll sit down at a piano, and I'll first imagine that I, I, because I don't know the rules of playing music, I truly can be free. I truly can just wing it. And then I imagine that I, I'm going to sound like somebody famous, like Marshall Hall. <laughs> and unfortunately, my playing of the piano often just sounds like this. It doesn't sound so good. It just sounds like a lot of banging. Now, if Marsh Hall was actually here, he would show you Oh my gosh, this is perfect. Marsh, can you, can you? I heard something. <laughs> can you play? I mean, will you? Yeah, yeah just anything. Sure. Just go ahead, play. Okay. Now, Marsh has given countless time and energy and money and sacrifice in order to play this well. He's paid a very high cost to be able to do this. Now, Marsh, let me ask you a question. Knowing that you can play this well, would you want all of the things that you paid to be able to do this back? But you'd have to give up being able to play well. No. So I think the same thing is true. Thanks, Marsh. That's good. It was beautiful. I won't play again. That's I won't. The whole... Oh, okay. <laughs> I won't play again. <laughs> so, so the whole thing is that he had to give up a lot to be able to play so well, but it sounds beautiful. There's something very compelling about a beautiful song. I think that most of our lives, when we're not living within obedience of God, it just kind of sounds like banging on a piano. There's nothing really that significant about it. But if we find in ourselves a way to sacrifice and pay the cost, God wants each one of our lives to sound absolutely gorgeous, to be moving and inspirational. I mean, Jesus probably had the most beautiful song that there ever was with his life. He comes to earth in the form of a baby. The incarnate God puts on flesh and blood. He lives this life of radical love. He teaches things that people couldn't imagine and yet lives them out and then dies on a cross so that each one of us can experience God in the same way that he does. That is a beautiful song. And there's something about that that makes me want to say, yeah, I'll, I'll pay the cost. I'll totally do that. Whatever, whatever, I'll give it. I'll pay that cost. But it's very, very high. Probably... The only, the only way to, to get to that beautiful song is through obedience, obeying the rules and measures of music, putting in the time to figure those things out. 
Now, all through scripture, Jesus has lots of different occasions where he shows this whole act of obedience. He shows what it looks like to follow God, to be obedient to him. But probably the most significant place is in Luke 22. And you can go ahead and turn there because we're going to read it in just a second. But in Luke 22, it's right before Jesus is about to die. And Jesus knows that he's going to die. He's actually predicted it and told people about it over and over and over. He's done it in very obscure ways by saying, I'm going to break this temple down and in three days I'm going to rebuild it. And then in Mark 8, he says very clearly to his disciples, hey, I'm going to die. And in three days, I will be raised back to life. So he knows this. And every time he says it, there are people who come up to him and say, no, 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 Jesus, you don't have to do that. That's not in the plan. And Jesus is always like, yeah, it is. It's totally in the plan. So in Luke 22, it's the night before he's about to die. It's the night before he knows that he's going to die. And he's just had dinner with his buddies. And then he brings a couple of his friends into this garden. It's this garden of this olive grove garden. And it's the garden of Gethsemane. And he asks his disciples to pray with him that they would not fall into temptation. And this is what happened. Check out verse 41. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. I mean, this is a gut-wrenching prayer. This isn't a, hey God, I just thank you for this day, the weather's beautiful, and you're awesome, amen. This isn't that kind of prayer. It is this gut-wrenching, sweating blood, agony, anguish prayer. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And I just wonder, how was Jesus able to get to a place that he was able to pray that? That whole idea of this cup that he says, Father, take this cup from me, I always thought that that referred to the crucifixion. And in fact, it sort of does. Um, but, but that was it, that, that when Jesus says, take this cup from me, he's saying, like, I don't really want to be crucified because that's super painful. Um, take this cup from me. But actually, the idea of the cup is this reoccurring theme through Scripture. It shows up in the book of Psalms. Uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and even Revelation. And, and the cup is actually a symbol of God's wrath being poured out. That when Jesus says, take this cup from me, he's not just worried about, about the nails that are going to go through his arms and feet and the, and the whipping that's about to happen. He's, he's worried about the cup of God's wrath being poured out on him. He's thinking about the fact, I mean, can you imagine God's wrath from all of humanity disobeying and walking away from him being poured out on one person? And Jesus is saying, please take this cup from me. I don't want to drink it. Please take this cup from me. So it's not just about the physical pain because the reality is there were many people who were crucified. There are many people even in this time frame right now that go through excruciating deaths. But what Jesus experienced was significantly more because of this idea of God's wrath being poured out on him so that we could all be with God. Now, when I hear him say, like, take this from me, I see in that that Jesus had a struggle I don't think he was ever not willing to do it. I think that, that Jesus 
knew what he was going to do, but, but it shows me that Jesus understands the struggle of obedience. That moment when we're like, oh, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I really don't want to because there's this other thing. Like, Jesus totally got that. I don't want to do this. This is really hard. Can you please take this away from me? He sees, you see his real humanity in those moments. It's funny to think that somebody who was born to do something would struggle with doing it. That Jesus came to earth for the express purpose of dying on the cross so that we could all be with him. And, and yet he struggles with that tremendously. And yet he ends that prayer with, not my will, but yours be done. In that moment, he's saying, I don't, I'm really struggling with this. I don't want to do this. But ultimately, it's not about what I want. God, whatever you want, I'm going to do. And for me, that harkens back to this beautiful song thing. Like, God, I realize that this is a high cost. But whatever I need to pay in order for this to be a beautiful song, I'm, I'm in it. I'm, I'm sold out for this. Even when it's going to be really hard and painful and difficult, he's totally willing to do it. Now, I think that we get in our minds a lot of time that obedience has to do with trying. That if I try really, really hard, I'll be able to be obedient. But I don't think it has anything to do with trying really hard. I don't think that Jesus in this prayer shows us this thing of like, hey, I'm going to try and that's going to make me successful at this. No, he shows us something completely different. In fact... In the New Testament, the word obedience, no matter which Greek word is used, the word obedience is always tied to a relationship, which is very different than what I think about and probably different from what you guys think about. When I think about obedience, I think about obey the speed limit, obey the rules, obey your thirst. All right? I think about, right, Sprite? Okay, so I think about, I think about obeying something or some rule that's put in front of me. But when Jesus talks about obedience in the New Testament, he never talks about obeying rules. In the Old Testament, that's true, but not in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus always talks about obeying God, obeying someone you're in relationship with. This is completely different. And it shows us that, that God actually and Jesus had a relationship together. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why it was easy to be obedient to him. In John 1, 2, it says that Jesus was with God since the very beginning. In fact, they were one in the same. They knew each other super well because they were somehow the same person but different. And that's real complicated. But, but they knew each other real well. It was in close relationship. Now I think about myself, and, and I put myself in this, in this position where the other day someone came up to me, and they were running late. They were supposed to drop off this meal for somebody. Don't you love it when people bring meals to your house? It's awesome, especially because normally for me they're better cooks than I am. But, but when someone brings a meal, they were trying to bring meals to somebody. And I didn't know the people they were bringing a meal to, but they were running late. And this person was one of my friends. So she came up to me. She said, hey, I'm running late. Do you mind if you dropped off this meal at this person's house? Absolutely. No questions asked. I can totally do it. Sure. Now, I was thinking about what if the situation was reversed, and in fact, I didn't know the person that wanted me to do that. Like, what if I was sitting at Starbucks one day, and somebody with this armful of Tupperware comes running up to me and says, hey, can you drop this meal off at somebody's house? Here's the address. 
I would look at them and all of a sudden I would have lots of skepticism and lots of mystery surrounding what they're asking me to do. I mean, my first question would be like, who, who are you supposed to bring? Well, the first question is, who are you? The second question is, who are you supposed to bring this meal to? Are they friends of yours? Are they enemies? Are they family? What's wrong with them? Then I would have more questions about, well, what, what are you bringing them? What's in the food? Is it poisoned? Like, I mean, I would have all of these angsty things about, like, I don't really know what I'm doing or why I'm doing this, and this is really hard to do. But it would be very different if I knew that person. See, I think that obedience is completely dependent on a relationship. If you know somebody, oftentimes it is a lot easier to be obedient than if you have no idea who they are. I think that perhaps this is one of the reasons why Jesus was able to be obedient unto death. Now, there's this one Greek word that I was fascinated by um, for obedience. It's pytho. Um, and I don't know a lot of Greek, so if any of you are Greek scholars, forgive me if I'm, you know. But, but, but I was fascinated by this. This word pytho, it means obedience, but it's tied really uniquely to persuasion, like to be persuaded by somebody, to be convinced by somebody, or to trust somebody. That's fascinating to me, that obedience and persu- to be persuaded by them or convinced by them are all tied together. So I think about this, and and I wonder, I go back to the example of my daughter and why she won't be obedient to me. And I think that perhaps in her two-year-old brain, she is not yet convinced of who I am. She is not yet convinced that I have really good things for her and that I know when she is not supposed to be in the street. And I know what she is supposed to eat and what she is not, right? She's not quite convinced of me. In her little two-year-old mind, she's still thinking, there may be something better out there other than mommy, which is totally not true. (laughs) Until she's 18, and then she can explore that, right? So, no, I'm getting a no. Okay, (laughs) never anything better than mommy, right? I think that she's not quite able to grasp the fact that, that I have really great things for her. She's not convinced of who I am. Now, I also heard the story of Derrick Rose. Now, again, I don't know a whole lot about NBA basketball. Basketball, right? Derrick Rose? Okay, good. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about this, but I heard this story that was really interesting. He had some problems with a three, uh, three, shooting three-pointers, right? And so during this last summer season, his trainer asked him to shoot 1,000 three-pointers every day. A thousand three-pointers a day. That's a lot of work. I wouldn't be able to make one of those. Now, apparently, he took his scoring during that summer. He started out at a 26% success rate for scoring those shots, and he moved all the way to, like, 72% success rate during his practices. And, and then this following season, he became the MVP. Yeah, MVP player of the year, the youngest one in the history of the NBA right? He was convinced of what his trainer, of who his trainer was. In order for him to stand there on a daily basis and shoot a thousand three-pointers, he was completely convinced of who his trainer was. There's no way he would have done it if he was like, yeah, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't really know what's best for me. 
And I think of that in the context of what Jesus was doing. Jesus in the garden, in that moment when he says, not my will, but your will be done, he is completely convinced of who God is. He is completely sold out to the idea that God knows what is best for him and for all of humanity, that God is a loving God. And even if this thing that I'm about to embark on is painful and difficult and hard, this is what I need to do. This is it. He is convinced of who God is. Now, I think about this because I think that a lot of times this isn't where we start. We don't start with the idea of if I'm having trouble being obedient, I probably need to be more convinced of who God is and I probably need to be in a closer relationship with him. I think normally when we're, having, when we're struggling with an issue with a coworker or something, uh, we go to the best self-help book we can find about dynamic relationships. Or we go to learn more about like world issues or something like that. And we, we rarely go to the root of the thing of what, who is God and what is he calling us to do, right? I, I think of this, and I'm going to use this example because I think for me it, it, light up, it lit up a light bulb for me. In, in talking about this, we had these parents' nights. Student Union has been doing these parents' night one, nights once a month um, since January, and we've done four of them. And... It's been really, really interesting. We'll pick a certain topic and we'll get a bunch of parents together to talk about that topic. How do you parent on this thing? We'll bring in an expert to kind of talk about like the professional side of stuff. Now, the first one we had back in January, it was about um, drug and alcohol abuse. And the tagline was like, was like experimenting versus a problem, like which is which. And we talked about this, and, and I had no idea how many parents were going to show up. I didn't know what was going to happen. We had like 50 parents come because they all really wanted to know about what, was gonna, what this looked like. What does it look like to parent through these issues? Then the next month we did another one, and it was on um, communication, how, how to communicate with your kid, how to talk instead of screaming at each other and fighting. We did that one, and we had like 55 people show up because they wanted to find out, yeah, this is my issue, and I want to know more about what it looks like to really talk instead of just screaming at each other. Right? The next month we had another one. It was like how to talk to your kid about sex. And we had 58 parents show up. So we were like, this is great. Now, the next one we had was, um, was about how to help your student, your kid, navigate faith. And how to help your student sort of uh, bring faith into home. That faith isn't something that happens at church. But, but how do we help our students really grasp that this is an everyday thing? We had 12 parents show up. Now, the thing that I think is really interesting is that I think that is a great reflection of how we all kind of think about obedience. We think of the problem, I, I want to I I be better at drug and alcohol, I want to be better at communicating, I want to be better at knowing how um, sexual relationships are supposed to take place, whatever sort of the issue is. But very rarely do we take it to the next level, to the deeper level, and think, what is at the heart of this? Why is this so hard to be obedient? Do I even, am I convinced of who God is? And do I really know him? I mean, think for yourselves. If you had the opportunity of going to one of those four things, which would you choose? I think, I think that this happens every day in our different lives. But Jesus' ability to say, not my will, but your will be done, had very, very little to do with him trying or him having lots of tools and resources to be able to be obedient. 
It all fundamentally had to do with him knowing who God was, being convinced of him, and being willing to pay the cost. Now, I want to challenge each one of you that as, as you think through your life, that as you examine your life and think about the areas where you're being obedient to God and the areas that you're really struggling being obedient to God, that perhaps there's a deeper issue that you need to seek out, that it's not just about whatever that thing is, but it's about something bigger. Are you convinced of who God is? And I wanted you to challenge you to really um, examine what that is for you. I'm going to ask the band to come on up, and we're going to play one more song. And, and during that song, I just want you to take that opportunity to, to work on that challenge and to think through those things. Will you all pray with me? Father God, I just... Father, there's something in my heart that wants to know you so much more than I do right now. And Father, I pray that that is true of so many of the hearts in this room. God, I ask that you would bring us to this place where we are not trying to be obedient or forcing ourselves to be obedient, but that we would wholeheartedly run completely after you to know who you are and to be convinced by who you are so that all of the other things kind of fall into place. Father, just bring things to the surface so that we um, can wrestle with them and wrestle with you. Father, I thank you for the example that you give us of Christ. I ask that you would make each one of our, our lives this beautiful song that, that is a testament to you, that it would be worth the cost. Amen.